0: We did definitely see our margin shrink significantly mm-hmm. um, because I prior to that I was running a 40% margin. It dropped down to virtually nothing for a period of time. And we've gotten it back at this point by you know divesting some of that stuff and cutting back. That's not to say you can't push through that and get to something bigger. It's a commitment, though. At some point, you're no longer a property manager. And you have to accept that. You are a people manager and you should probably try to stay smaller. Most companies are going to have a much bigger margin and better owner earnings than you would if you tried to grow the business to that no man's land area. Yeah.
1: Welcome to the episode of Profitable Property Management. Today, I'm talking to Todd Ortscheid of PM Assist and Revolution Rental Management. Todd, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Repeat guest. It's been a little while. Glad to have you back. Yeah, it's been a couple of years now. We want to get some of the updates on what you've been up to lately. So uh, catch me up to speed, man. What have you been up to the last couple of years?
0: Sure. Um, last, uh, I'd say year or so, um, I've probably been focused more on being a vendor um, as opposed to being a property manager. I still do have my property management company, of course, here in Atlanta. I did kind of sell off parts of it, downsize it, um, but I've been focusing on being a consultant for the most part, uh, working with property managers on revenue maximization, process implementation with Lead Simple, um, just general one-on-one consulting. So that has been probably I would say 80% of my time over the last year is what, uh, what I've been doing. So, so, yeah, that's kind of the big difference since last time we talked, I guess. Give me the good, the bad, and the ugly of consulting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say the good is, is easy. I mean, that's, um, you know, you always have something different that you're working on. You know, every company has its own unique issues, its own unique challenges. So, you know, there's not the same thing day after day. You're not just putting out fires at a property management company over and over again, it's, it's always something new. Um, so you know, that's it's interesting. You know, it's it it keeps you entertained, I guess. Mm -hmm. The difficulties of it would be that, you know, a lot of people hire a consultant. They know that they need to get something changed, they need to fix some things in their business, but it's very difficult for them to actually pull the trigger on a lot of it. When you tell somebody that, hey, you've got some people in the wrong seats or your structure isn't right, or you need to implement this software, a lot of times there's a lot of pushback. You know, they don't want to make those changes. Oh, I've I've had these employees forever. I don't want to upset them. Or, you know, we've, we've had these same processes in place for so long. I don't want to change that. And so there's that friction between, you know, they know that there needs to be changes made, but they're so resistant to the actual change. So it can be frustrating as a consultant to try to get that stuff done. So that's, I would say that's probably the, the pros and cons to it. How does that inform your client qualification process and who you choose to work with? That's a really good question. Um, you know, it's that's still being refined, I would say. I mean, we've had clients in the past that we will no longer work with because of uh, difficulties. Most property managers just need um, a little bit of a push, though. They need to know that, hey, other people have done this. Here is how it's worked out. So usually, you can get people to kind of come along after some some pushing. But yeah, there does need to be some initial vetting to see, you know, if I'm talking to somebody and they're just telling me tons of problems with their business, then I try to be upfront with them on that initial free consulting call and say, hey, I'm probably going to come in here and tell you, you need to completely overhaul your business. Is that something that you're able to do? Um, And we'll kind of talk about what that might entail and make sure that they're capable of doing that. And if there's too much resistance, I might say, hey, you're you're not
1: ready for this. Mm -hmm. I want to hear more about like the shift in your awareness around the things that you're talking about now versus when you first started in your career. I actually remember you being an early customer a number of years back and the business looking pretty different. When you think about the specific inspiration that you have around system and process, did you always have that bent, and later on you found like the tools and the context to do it, or was it something that you really just didn't quite um, have the passion show up until maybe the last you know five or so years? No, I mean that's that's
0: encoded in my DNA, I would say. I mean, when you, you know, for those who are familiar with Culture Index, if you do my Culture Index profile, it calls me a technical expert, mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of where my natural inclination is, is towards systems, processes. And then in my prior career, I mean, I was an airline pilot, so everything is checklist, processed, you know, everything's regimented. So that's what I lived for 14 years before I got into this business. So it was kind of a natural thing, but trying to find out how to do that in property management and realizing that you needed to do that in property management, it wasn't just, you know, cause like you said, for the longest time, we were basically a portfolio based management company. Um, not a lot of systems and processes because I just, even though that is my natural inclination, I didn't kind of draw that conclusion at the beginning that I needed to implement that in this business like I did in the cockpit. So it took time
1: to get there. I would say. What other systems and technologies did you try and play around with before you landed on Lead Simple?
0: Uh, lots of them. Um, I, you know, so we spent years with Process Street. So I, I would say we were on that the longest. But I mean, we tried Asana, Trello um what else did we look at monday i think we took a look at um ClickUp. i mean there's so many that we there's took a tons. look at i mean it's, it's crazy how many options there are and all of them kind of have pros and cons you know each of them has things that they're good at things that they're not so good at um but you know ultimately you know and of course the last one we did was hubspot right before we were on lead simple which That's was high. an enormous investment um, but just ultimately didn't work out. I mean, it just it wasn't what worked well for property management. So that was kind of the thing with Lead Simple is it was kind of custom-tailored for what we needed to do in the property management space.
1: I'm really curious to hear you say it doesn't work out because my kind of mental story is that there are a lot of tools that you can make work, right? Like if you're really dedicated, committed, you can kind of figure it out, and you're pretty technical yourself. Like What exactly didn't work out about HubSpot?
0: My biggest complaint with HubSpot, so I mean... it like you say i mean it's super powerful i mean this is enterprise level software is basically what it is i mean it's like a salesforce or something like that um but the biggest problem with it was it's not so much a process checklist type platform what it really focuses the most on is it's a marketing platform it's a sales platform and it does that fantastically i mean there's there's no doubt it's incredibly good at that um Part of the problem with that, though, is it is so advanced that most people aren't going to be able to use most of those features themselves. They're going to need to have a HubSpot expert on staff or hire that out. Um, But the other thing is, on the process side, it's not that great. So, I mean, on, on the marketing and everything else, it's fantastic. But when it comes to the simple act of having a checklist with some detailed instructions there that you can follow, that's not really a thing in HubSpot. You can create tasks, but they're kind of disjointed tasks around in your you got notifications for them, but they're not in a nice checklist format. Um, so it's it's not what I would prefer for implementing processes. If you're looking for the best marketing platform you can find, that's probably it. Mm-hmm. But you know that's that's not what we really needed.
1: I want to hear a little bit more about your philosophy on how to build processes. Mm-hmm. You see, people either go really wooden, literal, extremely detailed, or really high level. Some point at some point, it's just being kind of like a glorified checklist. Where do you sit on that, that nexus, and how much of that? is uh, determined on a client by client basis versus like your kind of general ideal state philosophy.
0: So the way I kind of look at it is you have your checklist, which is very simple. It's basically the task names in lead simple for for lack of a better word. It'll say something like draft the lease. You know, that's the checklist item. You click into that though and there's detailed instructions on it. So that kind of goes back to how it was when I was at the airlines. You have a checklist. It's like a one page document that you use for everything you're doing. But then you have a giant book it's called, you know, an operations manual that has all the details for every single one of those items on your checklist. So that's kind of how I look at it. You need to have the big book that has all the details. But for the most part, people should know how their job works. And they're just using the checklist to make sure that they're getting all the items done. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I look at building these things out. I think you need both. But, you know, I think what a lot of people run into mistakes on on checklist is they'll create a checklist that's way too detailed. Um, it has every little thing you need on the checklist. And that's not what a checklist is. It's not a do list. It's not, you know, a read and accomplish all of this list. It's, you know, these are you're checking off these items to make sure you did
1: them is really what it is. You're known for having a perspective that owners should enforce their standards and requirements and requests around using the software. If you were looking at it from the opposite vantage point, if you're talking to a team member and trying to... enroll them and get them excited, how would you articulate the benefits for them, not just for the owner?
0: Well, I I would say the biggest thing is explaining to them how it makes their job easier. Um, That there's an industry consultant, another one, uh, Mark Cunningham, that I'm sure most of your viewers are familiar with, he frequently quotes a study that was done that said that the number one thing that employees care about in, in job satisfaction is, I know what my job is you know just understanding what their role is at the company and that ranks above pay, above benefits, above everything else. That's what people care about cuz that just makes their workday easier. So if you can show someone that this is going to make your job more easily definable, you know what your role is day in and day out, all you have to do is work down your task list and you know what you're doing. That's a big benefit to people, I think. You know, when you just throw someone in a position and say, "Hey, you're managing this portfolio of properties, figure it out." That's stressful. That's difficult. That's a lot of work. But when you give someone a very clearly defined list of this, these are the tasks you have to do today, that's, that's a stress-free job for the most part. So I think that you can explain to someone how that benefits them. Um, and you can also, you know, if you're so inclined, you can take some of those increased efficiencies and you can roll that into higher compensation, better benefits for your employees too, so they can get some advantages out of that.
1: How, how involved should a team member be in the construction and updating of a given process that they're responsible for using day-to-day? So that is
0: a common topic of debate that I have with some other people um, in the industry. Um, I'm not a big fan of these big group discussions on what a process should be. I think most of that should be driven by the owner of the business. They know how they want their business to operate. However, there's a lot of cases where a owner doesn't really know how things are working. If you've gotten to the point in your business where you're five or 600 doors or more, you might be detached enough at that point where you don't really know how a lot of these things need to be done anymore because it's been so long since you've personally done them. So in that case, you need to bring people in. You need to find out what's currently being done. What do we need to change? But I always emphasize, do not let your employees dictate how your processes are going to be. Have input, you know, find out what they think, Get there, get some guidance, maybe. But you need to be in charge of your company. You know, don't let your employees push you around. I see way too much of that in this industry, and it's not just this industry. It's a small business thing. You never see this from big corporations. You know, when I was at the airlines, nobody calls you in and asks you what you think about how the next process should be. They just hand down a memo or an ops bulletin, as we called it, and that tells you what you're going to be doing from now on. And nobody debates it. You just go about and do your job. It's a small business thing because everyone's afraid, oh, if I lose that employee, that's going to create hell for me for the next six months. So they kind of let that employee control what their business is doing. Don't do that. You know, yeah,
1: that, that's not good for your company. So that's the compliance side of it. What about the feedback loop, though? Your team members will give you constructive, useful feedback. How do you formalize the process of incorporating that feedback to modify the processes over time?
0: So we actually solicit feedback on a regular basis. We actually have... Um, uh, I can't remember what the form is called off the top of my head since I, my wife does operations for us now. But we actually have a form. Every Friday we ask people, fill out any information you have for us you think would help us, anything we can improve. So we, we're constantly asking for that. And we also give them the opportunity to submit that anonymously. So if somebody doesn't want to speak up, then they can submit that anonymous feedback. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do what they suggested, but it at least gives them the opportunity to let us know what they're thinking Anything they're seeing that they think needs to be improved upon. So there's always that opportunity for feedback. Um, so you know, I think there needs to be a culture of that. That's sort of an EOS thing, also for those who are on that. You want to be collecting that information from from your team, um, but you know, again, decisions. There needs to be somebody in charge. Somebody needs to actually be making those decisions and and sometimes telling people, hey, we're not going to be able to do it the way you would like. What's the half
1: life of a process in your mind? How long before they need to be updated? But well, we are constantly updating ours.
0: So, you know, I know some people um, only like to update things like management agreements once a year. I've never really been of that mindset. I if I see a problem, if I think we can improve it, we're going to improve it now. You know, we're constantly doing that um, in general. Most processes, anytime you're changing anything at all in your business, it means a process could break down. So if I bring in a new software. You know, if I've I've changed from one inspection software to another, for example, that kind of has a cascading effect that can change a lot of processes. Mm. So even the slightest change can cause you have to make changes in those things. I think one of the biggest problems we have uh, that I see frequently is people will, employees will just start working around the process because the process hasn't been updated. Mm. So, you know, the employee will realize, hey, something's changed here. So I'm just going to start doing what I need to do to make it work to this new change. And they never pass that information up the line so the process can get fixed. So two or three years goes by, and before you know it, the process is there, and it's maybe 20% of it is still useful, and the rest of it, everybody's just doing their own thing that they know they need to do. So there does need to be a frequent review of these things to say, hey, what do we need to do to make sure this stays on track?
1: I experienced that from time to time, the gap between, like, what's actually b- between my conception of how, of how we do that and like how it's actually being done and just realizing that the bigger the organization gets, the more, the greater the Delta can be from the owner's conception of what's being done versus what's actually happening on the ground. Documentation is a great way to sync up and close that gap. Could you walk me through your full tech stack right now?
0: <laughs> uh, no, because I can't remember all of it off the top of my head. Um, it's, it's basically a full page of our P and is all of our software. The major components I would say would be propertyware—that's our accounting software. Lead simple, of course. Um, we use RentCheck for inspections. Uh, Zapier obviously is a big part of our automation process. Jotform for form submissions. parsour for parsing emails. So, I mean, there's there's a whole lot of stuff. Um, you know, the 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 major components that people need. I always tell people you need your accounting software, you need your process software, you need something for forms, something for e-signatures. And you need zapier those are kind of your basics you need to have to be able to automate your systems and all that kind of stuff from there it's endless i mean there are literally something like 10 or twenty thousand apps that will connect to zapier that you can automate things with so your tech stack can keep growing um and that i know a lot of people will look at that and say wow you spend a lot of money on software which is true but i spend a lot less money on labor also Mm -hmm. so it, it kind of you know we're we're doing a lot better overall, even though the software expenses are higher, the labor expenses are lower. You're spending one dollar to offset four dollars. Exactly.
1: And who do you use for your eSig platform?
0: Uh, we use PandaDoc, which we we think far away is the best platform to integrate with Zapier.
1: What are some actual use cases where you get leverage there?
0: Uh, everything. I mean, we use it for leases, management agreements. Uh, with some clients, we use it to just do uh, letters um, that get sent out. Um, you can use it for sales documents, because we also do brokerage uh, a little bit in our business. We don't do a lot of it, but we do some. So anytime you're doing a contract or a letter, you can use Pandadoc. So, you know, the the big benefit that I always tell people about Pandadoc is you can embed metadata in the background, basically, that you can use to connect documents back to Simple. So you can automate a whole lot of stuff. That's not so easy with some other e-signature platforms. So I always kind of encourage people to go the Pandadoc route. Um, But, you know, there's there's huge efficiencies in getting your e-signatures out of your accounting software, putting them into a dedicated e-signature platform that you can connect through Zapier.
1: I mean, there's a lot that can be gained there. I think that's probably counterintuitive for some folks, though. Mm -hmm. For a lot of folks, it's like, well, the point is that it's embedded in my property accounting software.
0: Yeah, that is... Probably the biggest mindset shift that I think people need to have is this idea that their property management accounting software should be a bunch of other things also. Your property management accounting software should be your accounting software and really good at accounting.: Yes, actually. you should have no problems with accounting. Um, but beyond that, it's going to be you know subpar and everything else because that's not what those companies do. Um, you know i when i When I talk to some of the the people at some of these other at these accounting software companies and they're trying to build e-signature or inspections or whatever the case may be, you know, they're the first to tell you, we're going to make something that's going to work. You know, it'll do the basics of what Mm -hmm. it needs to do, Mm -hmm. but that's not our business. You know, we're not in the DocuSign or PandaDoc business. We're in the accounting software business.
1: Yeah, this is like amenities. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, this is something that's, hey, it's helping you out. If you run a small property management business and you're not going to have all these other softwares, then we'll enable it so you can do it. But that's never going to be their specialty, so it's never going to be the best. And I, I'm a firm believer in take best in class, connect it all together, because that's possible nowadays with most of these softwares, and do that instead. Instead of trying to make the fifth best solution that's built into your software, you know, trying to force your processes to work with that, don't do that. Use best in class.
1: We just talked about this in a webinar when we were we were announcing the rollout of our propertyware integration. But I just want to ask you again, you're like deep in tech, like you, in my mind, are like the guy that would figure out 50 different options to change and you haven't. Why?
0: So, you know, there, there was a period of time, I think, where there was sort of a neglect of the software where it was, you know, not being kept up to date. I mean, Appfolio, if you look at that, they have been constantly making improvements over the past few years. I mean, they were the first one, I think, that you guys had the integration with. And PropertyWare wasn't really doing that, or RealPage wasn't doing that with PropertyWare. More recently, that's kind of changed. They're starting to get back into the role of, you know, starting to add features. They now have the new API that you guys are gonna be connecting to. So I think there is more of a move there to start improving PropertyWare again. Um, But, you know, my biggest thing is, it, it's the most customizable software out there. And, and for me, it's, it's so easy, all the custom fields, all the reports, all the data I can get out of it that I can own my data instead of having it locked away inside someone else's software. That's very important to me.
1: Which is interesting to me because you're get, you were getting that benefit for a long period of time in a way that wasn't even like fully supported, right? Like you found a way to get your data, That's probably the delta between your experience and others is that you were technical enough to find a way to do what you wanted to do, even though the retail experience probably isn't like that for everybody.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's not like, you know, out of the box. It's so easy to do this. I mean, the capability is there, but you kind of have to know how to get the stuff out that you need. So, I mean, we would basically pull all that data out, put it into something like Airtable or Google Sheets, and then we could do whatever we wanted with it. That was our data that we could use in whatever way we needed. But it wasn't easy. You know, I, I basically had to hire a software developer to do a lot of that, um, to be honest with you. I was lucky. I found um, a remote team member in, um, I believe it was Pakistan, if I remember right. And I was paying him, I think, eight bucks an hour or something like that. And he was living like a king. He was the happiest guy on earth. I mean, that's a lot of money in Pakistan. So, you know, it, it was great for him. It was great for us. You know, we were able to get that work done that we needed to do. But you're right. I mean, that's not something that the average property manager is probably going to do. When you have something like Lead LeadSimple that's pulling the data out automatically, where it's really easy for you to just click a couple buttons and suddenly your data is now available mm-hmm. to you, that's mm-hmm. that's a completely different experience.
1: And I think in general, this is an adjacency to one conversation I find very interesting, which is frequently folks will meet power users. I'm thinking about somebody like yourself, uh, like a Ben Sensenba. I can think of a bunch of other folks. And it's not always obvious From a distance, the delta that exists between what you're able to build or what somebody like Ben was able to build and all the effort then went into it versus what I'm able to build, Um, which isn't to say that I can't build something great, but I may not be extremely technical. I may not experience like joy and euphoria at building apps, et cetera. When you frame expectations for, for folks, particularly somebody that's coming in hot saying, I want to automate everything, Todd, I want one red button I press monthly that runs my business. How do you frame and hold expectations for what's realistic and practical and how long it's going to take to get there?
0: Well, I mean, usually what I'll do is I'll explain it in terms of hours of labor that's going to go into this. So, you know, I'll tell somebody, hey, if you want to automate, you know, so like when we build out someone's process as a PM assist, it's 12 major processes is what we're doing for the life cycle of property management. And I'll typically tell somebody, if you're an average user learning how to do this, this is probably going to take you somewhere between 400 and 600 hours to figure this out and get this done. So think about how many weeks, 400 to 600 hours of full-time work factors in. And that's why, because I mean, you'll hear people say, oh, it's taken me three or four years to build out my processes. Well, that's why you're working 50 hours a week in your property management business. And then you're trying to do a few hours a week of building your processes. And automating this stuff and learning it as you go along, just try to think of how long it takes if you only have a couple hours here or there to do that it's It's an enormous commitment. So you know, I always try to explain it in those terms of hours of labor this is going to take. Um, but there's also a, just an element of technical know-how. So I mean, some people are just not geared towards sitting in front of a computer and going through processes for hours at a time. you know you if you're a sales-minded person, which a lot of real estate agents who get into property management are, this is not your skill set, man. You're not going to enjoy doing this. It's it's introvert work, is what it is. You know, so this is not a salesperson. So you need to know that about yourself and realize I'm gonna have to find somebody else to do this, whether I bring it in-house, you know, some people bring in somebody who's good at that work or hire it out to a consultant. Um, you're gonna have to do something else because you're just gonna have to recognize your skill set. I mean, that's one of the most important things about being a business owner
1: is knowing what your skill set is and what it's not. I feel both empathy and tension when you described several hundred hours of work to get it up. <laughs> On the one hand, I think like, yeah, it, it's amazing to me how people will relate to a platform like Lead Simple and they'll look at the cost and think like, well, that's what I'm paying. No, what you're paying is your time. What you're paying the vendor is the lesser output. <laughs> the real input is your time and your effort and your thought cycles, you know? Um, some folks are like, so... Why am I doing this again? Like, if it's that much effort, like, what is the yield? How would you articulate the yield that is commensurate to justify that level of labor investment on the front side?
0: So, you know, it's what I always say is, so imagine that it takes 20 hours to build this one process, Mm -hmm. but then think about how much you're automating out of that. And that is perpetual. So it takes me 20 hours to build this. Once. One time. But then from now on, from here to eternity, theoretically, this is how many hours a week i save as a result of this and then it usually compounds to being thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours um or it could be factored into labor reduction where you know it's not your work that's being reduced it's an employees but as a result instead of having to have two employees i only have to have one for that role so you know it's it, you can figure it in as labor savings so you know that's kind of how I would look at it. It is frustrating at the front end to get it put together. It's a lot of work, but the payoff is extreme in a lot of cases.
1: Now, I assume that you are dog fooding and taking your own medicine here. You mentioned that 80% of your time is happening at PM Assist, but the remainder of the time is presumably going to the management company, which is still active. How would you frame um, what it's done for your own shop?
0: Uh, well, it basically makes it to where the only thing that I have to be involved in are escalations. So for the most part, the team is able to handle everything on a day-to-day basis. Um, A a lot of people who who are viewing this might remember I went on a road trip a couple years ago during COVID. I got bored and just decided I'm going to drive around the country. Because I had set all this stuff up, at that time it was still on Process Street instead of Lead Simple, but because we had it all built out, I didn't really need to do much. I basically started my day every day. I flipped open my computer. I did you know, 30 minutes or an hour worth of work, that's all I had to have involvement in the property management company. And then I could go off and drive around and look at waterfalls and ocean and that kind of stuff. You know, It was nice. So, I mean, it's given me that sort of freedom from the business. So I can still have the business. I still get the benefits of having a property management company that produces profits, but I don't have to do much with it. It's basically just when there's a really unusual problem that the staff doesn't have
1: a process
0: for, that they have to come to me otherwise it kind of runs itself
1: and when the staff does come to you for things do you then take that as input to figure out more processes you can build
0: generally so i mean we will do uh, we have a knowledge base on our website we have uh, owner knowledge base tenant knowledge base so if there's a question that comes up that we don't have something there for we'll build it so you know that will create a new knowledge base article if there's something that comes up that we don't have a process for i'll create a new process for it the goal is Eliminating anything that comes to me, finding what is the what, what was the reason that this had to come to me. Let's plug that hole because I want it to be at the point where I never am needed in the business. That's the ultimate goal. Now, obviously, that's aspirational. That's not really realistic. There's always going to be something. Um, crazy things happen all the time. I, I on the other call we talked about. I mean, we talked about a a murder that happened in one of our properties. You can't have a procedure for that. That's just you know a once in a lifetime thing. So those sorts of things will happen, but you know, from a practical standpoint, you can get it down to being such a rare occurrence mm, mm. that, I mean, you could be like a Peter Lohman, for example, who takes two months off
1: during the summer and just disappears to Europe.
0: Mm. That's not an unrealistic thing. You
1: can do that. Mm. I think of um, Brandon Skolden, who just did that recently as well. I never think of a small business as being an annuity in the same way that a T-bill or a CD would be. And even real, uh, rentals aren't that, right? Like there's some ongoing effort. However, what you're describing is a lot closer to an annuity to be able to collect the cash flow, low effort. And the upside, part of the upside that I see there is a different emotional relationship with the business versus an emotional relationship that says like, on occasion, I'm just going to have a bad day because the level of proximity that I have and what's going to be thrown up on my plate, I... It, it makes the, um, the vibe of holding the business feel differently. We've seen this wave of acquisitions that have taken place. Do you think that somebody who goes through this process is any more immune or durable or less likely to sell? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I,
0: I think there's a whole lot of people out there who decide to exit because it is stressful. You know, that is, they're trying to eliminate the stress. They're trying to eliminate the work. If they had another way to do that that wasn't exiting their business, I think a lot of people would. Um, and there's good reason for it because, I mean, the valuations we get on property management companies, they're up a lot. I mean, 10 years ago when we went to NARPAM conferences and you heard what people would pay for property management companies, we're up a lot from that now. But it's still not like any other business. I mean, if you sold a software company, a restaurant, you know whatever it may be, you're going to get a far better multiple than you get off of a property management company. It's just the nature of the business. So I still don't think people get a good return on exiting their company. You're usually far better off to find a way to hold on to that business, like you say treat it as as an annuity, as a cash cow basically where it's just constantly churning out money for you that you can have as a basically passive investment for the most part um and you know you basically have a perpetual revenue stream there. Why do I want to sell it off and get this one-time cash infusion instead of having this ongoing cash cow.
1: Now, it's interesting in your seat that you're pairing the revenue conversation with the automation conversation, and that together combined is what feels like it, it, it gets much closer to this idea of annuity. When you see, when you think about trends in the industry, where things are headed, what's on your horizon? What, what comes to mind for you of like, notable trends in the industry right now?
0: Um, Well, I I would say one of the biggest trends right now is, um, aside from acquisitions, I would say would be regulatory risk. So we're getting a lot of risk from the federal government at this point, talking about limiting what we're able to do on the revenue side. Um, There's a lot going on as far as uh, fair housing considerations. There's just a lot more that the government at the federal level is trying to get involved in. Now, how successful they will be at that? I have, you know, opinions on that and what they're able to do, but they're certainly making an effort to try to make our life more difficult. So, I mean, that is a big thing, I think, right now in the industry. The other trend I'm seeing is it's starting to feel a lot more like circa 2012, 2013, as far as the leads that are coming in. Leasing. Um, Leasing also. Um, You know, it's no longer the super landlord's market that it was from a leasing perspective. Days on market are up. Um, But we also have a lot more people that are looking to rent out their houses. So we're getting a lot more leads in than we were over the last few years, to be honest with you, from accidental landlords. So, I mean, for the last few years, a lot of it has been investor-focused. You know, if you're a business like mine that was always very much accidental landlord-based, I don't like working with big companies. So, you know, I don't want to work with REITs. I don't want to work with institutional players. So that has been a lot of the business the last few years. If you wanted to grow your portfolio, you had to take on people who had Chunks of houses rather than one-offs, so that's kind of shifting again because we have, as I saw this morning on CNBC, we've officially hit an eight percent average interest rate on a thirty-year mortgage. Um, there's people are holding on to their houses now; they're not going to sell that house that has a two point seven five percent interest rate. They're going to keep it as a rental. So we're seeing that trend again, um, where you know, back in when I was first getting into the business. It wasn't that hard to get new owners. And I think we're going to see a lot of that, you know, in
1: the next few years because of how things have changed on the sales side. How has your strategy and ambition shifted over time? I remember a period of time where you were focused on increasing and growing. You just mentioned some divestiture of a part of your portfolio more recently. What does the transition look like and what's driven that?
0: So I am a firm believer that the average property management company is better off not trying to be a big dog. Um, I think what most property management companies do is they grow beyond a certain point, usually four or 500 doors. They hit that point and they try to push beyond that. And what happens is their profit margin shrinks as they do that because they start adding layers of middle management, which is an inevitability. You can't avoid it as the business grows. You You can't manage everything. So you have to add additional people. Those people are expensive, so your margin shrinks. Then people get frustrated. You know, they stop growing, but then they're now stuck at say eight hundred doors. Their margin went from forty percent down to ten percent, and they're kind of in this no man's land that isn't very good. Um, so I think a lot of people get into that.
1: And did you, did you experience some of that dynamic yourself? Um, yeah,
0: to a certain extent. Yeah, we were at uh, at our peak. We were at about six hundred doors of single family and five or six hundred doors of HOA. And we did definitely see our margin shrink significantly mm-hmm. um, because I prior to that, I was running a 40% margin. It dropped down to virtually nothing for a period of time. And we've gotten it back at this point by, you know, divesting some of that stuff and cutting back. Um, that's not to say you can't push through that and get to something bigger um, and make, make it connect. successful. It's a commitment, though. And you have to, And you know, um, uh, Evernest, um, they have a podcast where they talk about this all the time where... Uh, Matt will always talk about, you're at some point, you're no longer a property manager. And you have to accept that. You are a people manager, a business manager. You're, you no longer have to be an expert in what it takes to lease a house. You need to be an expert in how do I manage a team? How do I deal with HR issues? How do I deal with risk management? That's what your life becomes. So if that sounds intriguing to you, then by all means, try to grow to thousands of doors. If you have no appeal whatsoever for that, then you should probably try to stay smaller most companies are going to have a much bigger margin and better owner earnings than you would if you tried to grow the business to that no man's land area.
1: Talk to me a little bit about your team culture ethos. One thing I've heard you have some commentary on is the idea of um, fire, hire slow, fire fast. Um, Walk me through how you handle underperformance.
0: Yeah, so I, I am a firm believer that no one should ever be surprised when they lose their job. I agree. Um, that should be something that they see coming, that they've been counseled about several times, and when it happens, they're like, eh, you're right, you know, I, I knew it was coming. Um, and I think wh- when I hear people say, you know, hire slow, fire fast, I think there's a tendency away from that. They just make a knee-jerk reaction. And that might not be what some people mean by because I've had this— Conversation with Matt Tringali, and he uses that phrase. But he, when we talk about it, he's more along my lines. It's just we use different terminology. But I think when some people hear that, they think at the first notice they have of someone underperforming, it's time to cut them loose. And that's, I don't think that anybody should be doing that. I think instead, what you should be doing is counseling them, training them, saying, Hey, let's see if we can figure out what the issue is here. In a lot of cases, you just got the person in the wrong seat. You know, you might have someone who is very good at sales. But you've got them in a customer service role, and they're just never going to excel at that. And you need to figure out what the issue is, and if you move them to the right seat, they could be your best performer in your company. So, you know, the other thing I always remind people of is, if you have someone who's underperforming, that's your fault. You hired wrong, or you, you managed. You onboarded on them. You yes, them. They, you know they didn't they didn't bring themselves into your company. You made this decision, so you need to figure out, hey, what did I screw up here? If somebody's doing bad. What do I need to do to make sure why Why is this happening? In um, a lot of cases, what it is is people aren't doing personality testing. Um, and I'm a big believer in that when you're on the hiring side of things. theres uh, I'm not sure if you've read this book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, uh, by Danny Kahneman. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful book. It covers a million different things, but one of the things it covers is hiring. And I, I discussed this with pretty much all of our consulting clients. He was uh, Before he was a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, he was basically in charge of recruiting and hiring for the Israeli defense forces. And he thought he was the best person on earth for putting people into the right role. And he just had this perception that he was, he had this natural inclination to put people where they belonged and would best perform. But then after a number of years, he did an actual study on this and and figured out, you know, of all the people I've placed over the years in the IDF, how many of them were successful? How many of them had to be moved? He looked at all the data and what he found was it was, he was basically no better than a coin flip. And he is a, a literally a Nobel Prize-winning psychologist. He should be better at this than anybody on Earth. And he can't do better than 50-50. So if you think you can, with all of your other stuff going on, just using a gut reaction to just figure out who's going to be good at what, I'm here to tell you you're not. You're never going to be. You need to use data to figure this out. So I'm a huge believer in culture index. You know, there's other things out there like predictive index. Even a basic DISC profile, if you're a small company and you can't afford, you know, something big like Culture Index, just run people through DISC, figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, And too many companies don't do that. I hear a lot of people talk about this, you know, eight hour grind of a hiring process where they're trying to wear people down. And what they're really doing is just trying to figure out what's my gut reaction to this person. Are they going to do well in this role or not? I'm going to decide. And no, you're you're not going to figure that out. It doesn't matter what kind of process you put them through. Unless you're actually testing them at some objective level, it's not going to work.
1: Hiring is really tough. Yes. My experience is that it's very easy to underinvest in hiring, and where I've landed on the amount of effort required to hire well is a little shocking relative to where I was at. Early on in my career, it was exactly what you said. It's like uh, probably talked to, probably for a given role early on, might have... Uh, 10 to 15 applicants talk to three of them hire one of them now the volume is much higher and there's a greater degree of conviction in our organization on who exactly we're looking for and more willingness to hold to our standards as opposed to i heard a hiring one of our hiring managers one time say well if we don't hire this person i don't know who we're going to get <laughs> i was like well That's the beginning of the end, you know, (laughs) that's, that's a scarcity mindset of like, this is the only option. So yeah, I know it's not a fit. And the reality is that it's not, it's not fair to that person in the moment. The delusion is like, well, we'll give them a shot. (laughs) That's not actually charitable to say, you know, I don't really know if this person is qualified, but we'll see. That's not, you put somebody in the seed that you think is going to succeed, position them for success. Um, I'm a big believer in that idea that there should be no sense of surprise when people depart. And ideally that conversation is kind of linearly amping up over time so that when it happens at the very end, it's mutually understood. It could be, uh, I mean, it, it is still painful, honestly. Oh yeah, It's never an enjoyable conversation, but it does require leaning into conflict. And I want to talk a little bit with you about conflict avoidance. Mm-hmm. As an entrepreneur, there was a point in my career where I realized that Parts of me can be somewhat con- conflict avoidant. I almost found that a little emasculating. I think of myself as like, more, I, and you know, my disc profile is like high D, et cetera. But realizing there are parts of me that are like, want to avoid difficult conversations. Um, how about you? How do you relate to having, how do you relate to conflict in general? And what is your leadership style kind of grown and changed over time when it comes to dealing with conflict in the workplace?
0: Yeah, I mean, some people are are surprised um, because, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, my Facebook posts and that kind of stuff, people think, oh, he's, you know, he lives in conflict. He's happy with that. Um, Not really. I mean, I I enjoy debate, Um, you know, particularly political, philosophical debate, that kind of conflict I'm cool with. Um, When it comes to something like terminating someone's employment, though, that's like a gut-wrenching thing Mm -hmm. for me. I, that's, that's very very difficult um that's the kind of conflict and confrontation that i do not handle well um because i do have in the back of my mind that oh i hired this person they probably left another job and i you know we're small enough where i usually know my employees so i'll know well they just bought a house and they've got two kids and but at the same time you know you have to make the change for the good of the business and everybody else is there so it's really difficult um So I don't actually deal very well with that kind of conflict. That's probably a a function. You know, if you look at my culture index or my disc or anything, you can see my my social ability is you know dead nothing. I mean, I I I force myself to be able to do these sorts of things like a podcast or a presentation, but that's not my natural inclination. So that's probably part of that. Um, But you know, I have leaned heavily on another consultant in the industry, Deb Newell, who helps me with those things. So if I have to do something like you know, terminate someone's employment, discipline them, counsel them. I will go to Deb for advice because she's fantastic she's at that Deb's sort of amazing. thing. So, you know, I mean that's that's something I, I tell a lot of people is, you know, you gotta have kind of a you know, a group of people that you go to for different things because there's no one consultant or, you know, one mentor who's gonna be help, able to help you with everything. You know, there's always, you know, I'm I'm great at building processes and policies and Operations—that's my thing. I know that that's my strength. I'm not good with conflicts with people. I'm not good at managing people. I'm not good with sales. So you have to know what those things are and know the people you can go to who are
1: expert at that to to help you with those things. So that's that's kind of how I deal with it. I experience you as somebody that does not do well being hard sold. Something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also I experience you as somebody. That has like a deep guttural response to the, the feeling or the idea of being bullied, mm-hmm. even including in a corporate context, which like you would think that wouldn't happen, but on occasion it does come up in a business setting. Where does that like gut reaction come from for you? Are there any like early formative experiences that inform how you relate to that now? I, I don't know exactly where
0: that would come from. I mean, I I was obviously, I mean, in a previous podcast, we had talked about how I was a labor union leader and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, I came from a background where it was confrontational between labor and management. So, I mean, you were fighting all the time to get what you thought you deserved and to, you know, influence things like safety, you know, at the airline industry is where I was. So safety was a big part about what the union did. So, you know, I think, you know, in that environment, there is the tendency for corporate to push you around and to try to tell you, you know, what they think of you and how you're not worth what you think you are. So maybe that plays into why I don't like sort of the pushiness and that sort of thing. Um, But that's all I could really point to. I could think of, you know, I'm not sure where else that might come from. But, I mean, I agree with you. You're you're reading right into my personality. I don't like hardcore sales tactics. I don't like, you know, pushiness. You know, that's one of the... Yeah, it's also one of the big reasons I haven't been a fan of some of the venture-backed acquisition companies out there that are going around and buying people up because I think they've been very aggressive in how they've done it. I don't like that. Some of it, though, is just downright you know dishonesty. And in a lot of those cases, I think in a lot of high-pressure sales, there is a fundamental dishonesty to it. You're being so high-pressure, you know, you're so focused on closing that deal that you will say whatever you need to say to close it. And for me, dishonesty is probably the worst character trait anyone can possibly have. Um, I would rather sit down and talk to an honest murderer than a dishonest, run-of-the-mill person, because at least I know that what they're telling me is the truth. You know, I can see who this person really is, and I, you know, we can have a conversation. If what you're telling me is just BS, then why are we even sitting and having a conversation? And it's, mm. not even, it's not even relevant anymore. So, you know, I think that's probably a big part of it,
1: too, is there's just a fundamental
0: dishonesty to high-pressure
1: stuff. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that and I can relate to that. I think in general, people want the truth. People want authenticity. Um, and I experience that as being partly baked into the NARPAM circle. If on no other level, then when vendors keep coming back, there is an intrinsic um, forcing function for the honesty to come out because people like you talk to other people and it just goes around. You can show up and screw people once, but you can't keep showing up and pulling anything over on people. It kind of, it's like a self-policing mechanism just to have to look people in the eyeballs every, you know, a couple of times a year. Um, that's one of the benefits of the vendor community. But I think a lot of the others have to do with creating some culture in the industry that I'd like to think is probably not the norm in other industries, like knowing your vendors, having fun. We just, uh, we had to throw the grill last night. I really enjoyed that. You know, it's laid back, you're kicking it with people and there is some semblance to the idea that you can actually get to know these people on a personal level and that what you learn about them personally also informs your understanding of their approach to business and their service offering, et cetera, you can't really divorce the two. You can't divorce corporate culture from your experience as an end consumer. That's my experience. No,
0: I I agree completely. And I, I think. It's kind of weird because this is kind of a big industry in a sense. I mean, there's probably somewhere around 100,000 property managers in America. But, you know, especially at the NARPM level, it's a pretty tight group, I would say. I mean, you generally, if you go to conferences, even just a couple times a year, you generally know a lot of people. You know the vendors, you know fellow property managers. So like you say, it's, you can't keep screwing people over, over and over again. People know who you are, word gets around. Um and I like that about this industry. You know, I was in HOA for a little while. That's not the same. You know, you go to a, a HOA conference, there is not an openness. You know, people aren't sharing best practices in the same way. No corporate. It's very competitive. You know, it's very corporate. It is, you know, it's just not the same. And the same thing on just the real estate sales side. You know, there's always this sense that anybody else I'm talking to is a competitor and I need to treat them like a competitor. And for whatever reason, and I can't quite pinpoint why, um, property management is not that way. Um, there's a lot of things I can criticize NARPM for, and I do regularly, but the culture um, is certainly not one of those things. You know, the, the openness of sharing Welcome best practices. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's been fantastic. So I think we do a much better job of that than other industries
1: do. I love talking to somebody new when they first show, show up here, and then they don't, they're like, have no idea who these vendors are. They have no idea about a lot of the best practices. I'm like, "Wow, your mind is about to get blown. <laughs> You're not going to be able to, like fit all of it in the floppy desk up front. But, yeah, the ramp of how of how much value can be added for somebody to not be a NarPAm member and then come in the community, it's insane. and And some of that is obviously a credit to Narpam, um but also just the community. I mean, NARpam is a collective of, individuals that care and are contributing and giving back and that's a fundamentally human thing aside from a name or a label of any organization that's something that people want to do is to to be known to be in community to give back and it feels good and i've seen you contribute to that in a number of different ways i'm curious when you think about the education and the conversation that is wanted and needed right now what's a topic um a theme a best practice a standard whatever that you would like to see get more airtime and would make a big impact for the industry going forward
0: uh interesting you asked that at thrill of the grill last night i was actually sitting having dinner with daniel craig who's obviously a profit coach that uh, that you're involved with but he's talking about uh, possibly building an operational dashboard um i think that is going to be something revolutionary if that comes about because that's we had the NARPAM accounting standards which was i think a huge game changer it really It got our vocabulary down, you know, all these terms. If you had talked to a property manager six years ago and asked what, you know, ARPU they had, it's like, it's not even a term. Nobody even knows what the hell you're talking about. Nowadays, you know, we know what that means and we know what the benchmark for it is. That is a huge shift. I mean, you can't underestimate what that meant for the industry because you can look at what the numbers were before and what the numbers were after and you could actually see the difference. I think if you do something like that, if you get people focused on operational KPIs in the same way, that's going to be a similar change in the industry. Um, and we kind of saw that also on the sales side of things with Lead Simple and with Rent Scale, and then BizDev Mastermind and these other companies that were starting to focus on operationalization of sales, which you talked about for a long time. It kind of did the same thing in that you know people started focusing more on KPIs there on. Systems and processes. You know, my BDM now in my property management business is probably the best BDM I've ever had. But if you if you looked at him, you would never think this is like a sales guy. You know, for people who know like Jeremy Pound, who is a natural salesperson, Mm -hmm. you can look at him and say, "Well, this is obviously a sales guy." You can see the way he talks, the way his mannerisms are. He's built for sales right out the womb, basically. My BDM is not like that, but I took the playbook. That Jeremy built, and I handed it to this BDM, and I said, "Hey, you've got the basic personality traits you need to be successful at this. You're not, you know, a rainmaker, but you can do the do the process. Just follow what's in this book, and put it to work." And he did that, and just the you know, operationalizing that, making it systematized. That's all you really need to do to make an enormous difference. So, you know, if we continue to do that in other areas of the business, like we've done there, I think that's going to be just an enormous shift.
1: I think the thought that I'm having right now listening to you is that this is what professionalizing the industry looks like. All of this stuff has truly elevated people and it's creating more of a delta between property management being done by the seat of your pants by as a result of a downturn in the real estate market backwards versus somebody that is like really dialed, has a framework, a mental model, understands the levels, is graduating, improving what they're doing. I want to see that happen. I want there I want to say be able to say with sincerity that professional property management is like a real defensible concept that is worth being paid and and commensurate with the value that it's creating. and it, yeah, it's it's like exciting, genuinely exciting to me,
0: yeah. and I, I mean, we've seen that, you know for for people who know Australia is a lot more that way and it has been for a long time. There were giant companies in Australia that do property management, great, white. Yeah, a perfect example. Um, that's not really a thing yet in the United States. There's some companies starting to get there, like Evernest you know, They're starting to get bigger in, in that sense. But that was never really a thing um, before. It was always little moms and pops everywhere, kind of doing things their own way. And we're starting to get away from that. And you know, I, I think there's good and bad to that, but I think overall, it's going to be a lot of good We just have to make sure that we don't let the good things that we've had, like the sense of community, like the openness, we don't want that to disappear as it becomes more operationalized. We want to keep those good things. So I think that's what we need to focus on as we kind of do this shift, because it is going to become more professional, like you said, like a multifamily industry. It's going to start to shift more towards that, but we want to make sure we hold on to the good parts of
1: what we've had, I think. That's such a good place to end. I completely agree. I see the money coming in the industry and I feel generally positive about it, but I am aware I don't want to see the money corrupt things. I don't want to see it, it exert undue dominance and control in surreptitious ways. And I, I don't think that that's going to happen. I think there's a possibility for it, but ultimately I think that the good and the light is going to outweigh the, the bad and the darkness. So I hope so. Glad to be in this industry with you, brother. Appreciate you Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Until next time. Yep. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate a subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, would really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.